Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. This episode continues our conversations exploring the upcoming 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing and some of the impacts and outcomes it will have on the country. It's an event that will touch everyone in or involved with China and should have long-lasting effects well into the years following. Today, we are talking with Justin Downs, president at Axis Leisure Management, a firm comprised of hospitality, leisure and business experts specializing in winter sports, hotels, resorts, restaurants, bars, retail, golf courses, tourism authorities, entertainment companies, and various other establishments, all related to the services and hospitality industries in China. We cover a range of topics, including the before and now snow sports industry of China, what the preparations for the Olympics look like through various lenses, ski resort development in China, and the underlying economic factors, as well as a look into the future of winter sports in China in general, and whether the government is on track to reach its aspiration to create 300 million winter sport enthusiasts. And remember, if you do enjoy our podcast, please take a moment to help us out with some feedback and advice by either leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts or dropping us a note at podcasts at WPIC.co. Now, on with the show. Enjoy. The difference about the ski resorts in China, which is different to the ones in the West, is that people need so many other things to do. They, they might want to spend a lot of time dining. They're looking for other attractions, both indoors and outdoors. They're looking for tours. They're very keen to engage in other things other than just skiing. Probably the biggest difference is that the ski resorts, and something I've tried to get my, my developers to understand is, you are, are a resort that has skiing. You're not a ski resort. So everything does not have to be purely about the snow. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks very much. It's always good to talk about the world of winter sport and skiing in China. Yeah, and we're doing a lot of that as we lead up to those Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics. And, you know, this is a bit of a different tack for China because, of course, they did the the Summer Olympics last time in 2008. So ramping up, talking a lot of a lot about sports and just the markets of sports, the economics of sports, the culture of sports in China. So why don't we start that whole conversation with a quick introduction of yourself, your area of expertise and how you ended up in China? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's both a long and a short answer to that question. So I'll, I'll go with the easy part first. Um, I got into the industry by accident. I moved to Whistler like a lot of people do for a, a short little experience back in, well, back when I was just 19 years old and found myself in love with the winter sport industry and decided I needed to get a job to support my lifestyle and uh, started working with uh, with IntraWest, as, as everybody knows at the time, was the owner of Whistler. 
worked my way through that organization and stayed in Whistler for, for 10 years. Met my wife there, got uh, had a child there, uh, basically started my whole adult life there. Then was moved over to uh, to Panorama, where uh, I was on the executive team at Panorama in the uh, in the Columbia Valley for a couple of years, and then had the fantastic opportunity to start Kicking Horse. I was the first employee and developer of Kicking Horse Resort in Golden, which uh, many of you might know. It's still on many people's bucket list and still my, and still on mine as well. So I had, had five years of a great time uh, building a fantastic resort in a wonderful small BC community uh, that's now uh, globally well known. Um, went over to Australia for a couple of years for uh, for a change in pace and ran uh, a couple of ski resorts that coincidentally, uh, the owners of those ski resorts, uh, uh, after I joined them, ended up being the owner of Big White and Silver Star, which many of you guys know. So the Australian families that owned Big White and Silver Star uh, owned two resorts in Australia, which, uh, which, which I ran for a couple of years. Um, in 2006, uh, I, I was approached by IntraWest again, who was saying they were they had some big plans to try to take the IntraWest brand and model to Asia and focusing on China. And they knew I was uh, closer to that part of the world than they were and asked me if I would be interested to join. So it was via IntraWest that uh, China's doors flung open for me. Um, and I joined uh, IntraWest China, as it was called at the time, in 2007. Um, and came over as the executive VP of operations, uh, overseeing the development and operation of five resorts that that we as a company had acquired. Um, that was a lot of fun, uh, but unfortunately, as most of us know, you know, 2008 was not a, a, a great year in the financial world, and IntraWest uh, and partners pulled out. Um, uh, and that's when, in 2009, I decided that there was a huge opportunity in China. Uh, with the the you know tourism developments, people's aspir- aspirations to have a better quality of life, get more into sport, uh, that there was going to be a boom in the in the sport and tourism development industry. So I thought, okay, I never thought I would be self-employed. I never thought I would be self-employed in China, but here, that's that's the opportunity that presented itself, and I'm still doing that today. So it's all fun and games. I love that. That's a great. That's a great story uh, akin to my own heart for sure. Let's talk a little bit about Axis. I work with a lot of startups and you know one of the things that we're always going after startups about is the ability to communicate the problem that you're solving. Your your company can exist unless you're, you know, we believe that you're 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 solving a problem. So I, I want to pose it to you this way. Tell us about Axis, but also tell us a little bit about the problems that you're helping solve. Well, when I first started uh, Axis, the the as 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 I explained earlier, you no know, IntraWest was coming in as the pioneer of trying to bring Western or North American uh, destination resort solutions to the Chinese market, which at the time didn't didn't exist in any shape or form. There was no real international model that any of the Chinese tourism developers were creating whether it be in a beach environment or a culture or tourism environment, but certainly not in the mountain environment. So really the principle of Axis uh, uh, was riding, riding on the back of what IntraWest was planning to do, which was to bring a global, global high quality standard experience across the board into the winter sport market in China. Now, when, when IntraWest pulled out that, that opportunity became even more evident because 
it was in the following years that uh, the, the the industry started to really boom and resorts started popping out all over the place. There is absolutely no expertise in the China market for building uh, international level uh, ski resort destinations. So the entire industry from the government right the way down into the developer to the hotel uh, operators to the to the to the management to the staff, every element of the ecosystem, needed support to understand what was coming. And that was really the principle of how Access was built. So we, we, we built ourselves as a management company uh, at the end of the day, like, a, like an IntraWest, although IntraWest operated its own facilities, but more like a hotel management company like Hilton. So somebody builds a hotel, but they need a, a brand to operate it. We built it under that principle. But starting from scratch of uh, basically doing initial feasibility studies on where can we build this, uh, this idea what can we build? How big can it be? What market is it going after? So it's the market research, the advisory planning, the, the, the financing studies, um, basically every element to even get the idea off somebody's out of somebody's mind and get it onto paper so that it could be uh, validated and then put into, put into plan. Um, so we, we would take over that part on behalf of the developer, big idea, no idea how to execute then take on the coordination of the design of the master planning. And we would work with our, our partners, both domestically and internationally, to coordinate the planning process from the master planning for the ski trails, for the summer programming, for the village environments, for the hotels. In essence, it's a turnkey service that we brought. And at the time, back in 2009, 10, 11, 12, there was no one in China that had any experience in doing this in China or internationally. So that's how we fell into our niche. I'd like to know a bit more about the resorts. You're you're actually involved in helping develop resorts. Can you tell us a little bit more about the resorts, what involvement you have, how they're developing? Well, each each of the resorts that we get involved with have uh, different dynamics. And it starts by one starts with location and two starts with who is the developer and what is their background. So many of the developers in China back when we started the company, were coming from purely urban real estate or, or commercial real estate development. They had no expertise in tourism. They had no expertise in areas outside of urban environments. So, so as, the, as, as the industry evolved, now our developer uh, customer base, let's say, are a little bit more sophisticated. The market is more mature. So it started really by educating from absolute ground zero. And uh, find, finding a piece of land in a remote location um, in, in China is quite easy. So it's, it's really about the who's going to come there and how are they going to get there. So in some cases, the, the, the Chinese government builds fantastic infrastructure, high-speed rail to a point, and there's nothing at the end of that point or, or, or an airport. There's nothing there at the end, or they build a fantastic destination, but no way to get there. So it was really trying to link the uh, link these two components into a more organic growth solution. Um, but in essence, pretty much every resort that we have been involved with is purely greenfield. There was nothing there before. It was farmland or, or yeah, purely purely farmland, very, very poor rural communities. Uh, it's about how to identify the, the components that uh, that are essential to any destination resort, how to put those together and, and phase those in a logical fashion. So in, in some cases, uh, in the case of one of projects that we did in Jilin province in an area called Changbaishan near the border of North Korea, uh, 
we basically built a village the size of Whistler in one phase because that was the intention of the developer was to go big or go home and uh, you know open in one stage, get all of the construction out of the way. So built 3,000 hotel rooms and nine chairlifts and three golf courses all in one go. That would be unheard of in uh, anywhere, actually. Might take 30, 40 years to do in many countries. So in some cases like that, we we are building from from you know zero to a thousand kilometers an hour in one go. And in another resorts like what we've been doing in the Olympic zones, it's been a little bit more of a methodical North American phase process where it's market market driven growth, add more hotel beds, add more ski trails. Uh, but basically, all of them have started from absolutely just bare green land. And that's that's the fun part of it. It's a it's a blank canvas. Uh, you have the opportunity to do some unique things. Uh, and, and China, the Chinese market is quite receptive to to unique things. They're looking for something that's different. They're looking for different experiences and attractions. Um, and, and they're looking for, a, 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 you know, a, an integrated environment. And in the case of the Chinese ski resorts, you're typically only talking to one developer, whereas in the case of a North American resort, you have one master developer or local government, but it's lots of different people building different things at different times. And then it's the responsibility of the local authorities to coordinate all of these things. In the case of China, you're typically talking to one person. And that's probably the biggest difference, which makes it both uh, good and bad at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's uh, it's an exciting it's an exciting thing to do. But it's the whole thing. It's restaurants. It's retail. It's attractions. It's hotel beds. It's uh, you know it's staff housing. It's everything going into into one pot. There's so much to talk about, I, and I'm so inspired to go in so many different directions from everything you just said. Um, I'm going to start from thirty thousand feet, and then we're going to drill down. Okay, so let me give a broad kind of a bit of a layup for you. I hope from what you're observing, how is China preparing for those Beijing 2022 winter Olympics? Um, and I know there's a lot of specifics that we could drill down into, you know, housing versus infrastructure versus logistics, um, you know, food, uh, staff, there's marketing, there's, there's so many things, but I'm just going to kind of leave it there. I want to, I want to almost see and be interested to, to, to see what you're going to go with. If I just kind of blank canvas, put out the question from what you're observing, how is China preparing? Well, I guess there's two parts to it. One is the there's the evolution of the Chinese industry, and then there's the production, preparation and production of the Olympic Games. If we focus on the games, I mean, China is extremely proficient and professional at organizing things. Um, you know, obviously a massive work, workforce, uh, a lot of talented people, both globally and international and domestically coming together. Um, you know, they're they're. They, they've done a very good job of meticulously planning out the venues, working with the the the, 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 the you know the premier experts in the particular field, whether it be bobsled or alpine or freestyle or you know, ice skating or whatever the case may be, to make sure that they have access to those resources. They they listen very carefully uh, to the the federations, the Olympic federations, whether it be the FIS or the or 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 Alp or, or you know any any of the federations, whether it's ice hockey. Uh, about what are the needs to do this well. There's no way that China would uh, would cut any corners on making sure that the venues themselves were anything but world-class standard. 
Um, and that's highly evident. They, they, most of them have been finished well in advance. Uh, they're all pretty much finished now with the exception of some, uh, you know, some decoration and landscaping and things like that. But functionally, the venues have been ready for quite some time and have already hosted several, several events, both domestic and international. You know, on the soft side, as we know, these these past uh, couple of years have been quite a challenge <laughs> with uh, with COVID. Um, and so that stopped a lot of the international uh, support coming in to help with training. Um, you know, there with, uh, you know, on the on the soft side, on the guest service. But there's still a lot of things that have gone on, you know, remotely, a lot of a lot of very large Zoom gatherings of various experts from around the world helping to guide China through the process of what should be expected from Winter Games. The good thing is, is that China performed a, a fantastic job in 2008 with Summer Games. So it's not as if they've not done this type of thing before. And thankfully, several of those people are still around. Um, so I think from a from an execution standpoint, you take COVID out of the equation. I think China would have, would have and will deliver a flawless athletic uh, experience. So you know, for those watching it on TV, it will be world class. It will be flawless. Would be my expectation. The 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 um, the, the things we don't know yet are the things that would probably uh, give anybody a hernia or a heart attack. Is how to do all of this in COVID times and try try to protect the safety of uh, of the, the you know of Chinese population and the great job that China's done to kind of uh, you know keep keep control of this pandemic uh, within its borders. Um, the the systems that they will put in place, I think, are going to be very strict, uh, but unquestionable. So they, you know, I think that they put a lot of thought into how the movement of people will be managed. Um, so that there is no risk on anybody that the events can be carried out uh, as they should be uh, at the highest level, that those that need to be involved will be involved and those that don't need to be involved don't need to be here at all. Um, I think we'll have spectators in the, in the stands. You know, they'll obviously be largely those people that are already in China. Uh, but, you know, it will be a fun and vibrant experience. And I think the world will be will be suitably impressed about what China has done, given that most people don't uh, understand that China has a winter sport culture at all. And uh, I think China will demonstrate that not only to the world, but certainly to uh, uh, to its own its own uh, population. I think people will, will take notice. Let's just drill down one level to your work, your company, and talk about Axis. How are you and your team specifically preparing for the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics? We we are involved from a couple of different levels. And, you know, it, we, we are fortunate in a way that um, in several of the early test events, uh, many of the nations and the NOCs were, were coming not, not test events, but World Cup events, let's say, were coming out to China and doing their very early investigation as to, okay, what do we need to consider for the games? So, you know, wh whether we had uh, World Cup freestyle events or, or hockey events or whatever the case may be, the, the federations and the National Olympic Committees and their various sports team managements were coming out and starting to look around. And as, as time got closer, and certainly as COVID uh, came into play, um, many of these people couldn't come back to see the progress of the venues. So they came to us because we were a known entity. We, we are uh, foreign operators, but very well integrated and knowledgeable about the local market. So we basically have become their eyes and ears uh, as they plan for 
the, the knowns and the unknowns as it relates to the game. So whether it be uh, accommodation sourcing, communications with the organizing committee, uh, hospitality venues, procurement, transportation, uh, pre-event training venues, basically anything that they need to do that they would normally do in a games by themselves, we have picked up the mantle and we're doing that for them. So that's a big part of what we've been doing for the past couple of years. Um, that's on the National Olympic Committee side. And then on the venue side, uh, we've been quite fortunate to uh, be hired by two of the venues, the Alpine venue and the freestyle venue, to provide the technical expertise, the foreign technical expertise for those that need to come into the country um, under the direction of the, of the international body. So in this case, FIS. So our, our, the large part of what we're doing is doing the planning and the implementation of the mountain rescue plan of the mountain rescue strategy at these venues. So the international ski patrollers, the procurement of all of the equipment, the, the operating procedures, the, co the coordination with gov the governing bodies, the local government, the local organizing committee, the helicopter rescue people, the hospitals. So we're providing, in essence, the, uh, the, the, the safety requirements that are paramount to the success of any games, as we would know, uh, that falls to us as well. So we come in up from two angles. Okay, you you did touch on something I wanted to ask after that, which was your your clients, and you mentioned a couple of them there. Can you talk to? Are you able to talk to? I don't know if you're allowed to mention them, but who who some of your other clients might be, and some of the other work that you're doing for them? Sure. I mean, from the NOC NOC standpoint, so the National Olympic Committees, uh, you know, we're working with the Canadian Olympic Committee, Canadian Paralympic Committee, the German Olympic Committee, French. Uh, we, we're doing directly and indirectly work with uh, Sweden, Norway, uh, and the U.S. Um, we've done a little bit of work with Slovenia. So everybody has large and small needs. Our primary focus have, has been on Canada, Germany, and France. Uh, and as we get closer, there will be more and more things we need to do. On the venue side, uh, we are engaged by the National Alpine Center in Yanqing, which is the venue for the Alpine ski venues, uh, Alpine ski events. Um, that's in Yanqing, which is basically inside Beijing city limits, but on the border of Beijing and Hebei, uh, Hebei province. And then we're also engaged in the Chongli Zhangjiakou region. So uh, at the Genting uh, freestyle venue, uh, but we're also engaged with the developer of, uh, of, of the athletes village and the uh, metal plaza area. So that's a very large development called Taizacheng. And we've been working very, very closely with them about their planning and execution of metal plaza, metal ceremony related topics in relation to the commercial tenants. So kind of in those three areas, with a little bit of work with the, with the, uh, with the curling arena in, arena in the early planning days as they convert, because that is the, uh, the, the water cube from the 2008 games conversion of that from water into ice and a little bit on the uh long track speed skating oval um just on their commercial on their commercial facing stuff not necessarily on the technical side yeah that, yeah, that speed skating one's going to be important i think that's one of the one of the sports that china really excels at um currently in the in the winter sports side of things let's just pull back a little bit from specifically on the Olympics, although we are going to get into that a little bit, but let's go and shift over to ski and snow sports. And just could you could tell us a little bit about the reception, the current temperature of the appreciation and eagerness and, and involvement in ski and snow sports in China and, and how that has gone recently. And then 
potentially to what extent has the upcoming Beijing Olympics for 2022, has that caused a bump in interest? Are we seeing growth? And if we are, if you could maybe help me also understand how we measure that. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the good thing is, is it's not just about winter sport. It's about sport in general. And ever since 2008, there's been a, a lot of interest and pressure, both from the public up and from the government down to create an environment where people are healthier and happier. So it's not just about winter sport. It's the development, you know, the, the running, the, the running industry or the yeah running or jogging, the swimming um, you know, the gym industry, just general health and wellness in China is off the charts uh, as far as opportunity and growth. Of course, winter is, is a component of that. And I think that the winter, the winter sport industry, in particular the ski industry, was already on an upward traje- trajectory before the Olympics were announced. And what it's done is it's just sped that up. It's solidified its, its place as a, a dominant player in the sport and tourism market. Um, it's if you turn on any open any newspaper or turn on any local TV uh, station, of which there's thousands, um, every every media outlet is promoting winter sport. Now that's obviously an initiative of the government, and the government uh, can can direct this to happen. But it's working. Um, they they definitely have created an enormous interest in winter sport, um, and people are curious and are trying it. And the, the key thing is, is, okay, yes, people want to try it, but it needs to be made convenient to try it. So government policy is now uh, encouraging people even so- in Southern China, um, you know, developers to build winter related facilities as a part of their mixed use developments or tourism developments. So that's seeing a huge boom in indoor, indoor ski and snow play environments, uh, ice rink development, any of these types of things. So it's really uh, spawned a huge, uh, rapid increase in development of facilities. Um, uh, it's it's increased uh, a lot of development and sped up the uh, certification, accreditation, the increasing of the expertise of the local development on behalf uh, local operators on behalf of the government to deliver a safe and value oriented experience. Um, it's, that's highly evident that the government is pushing that and, and in enforcing strict standards on on what the quality of the service provider needs to conform to. Um, we're seeing huge increases in students getting involved, and that's another push by the government to uh, make sport in general a part of the of the school curriculum, which you know five ten years ago would have been unheard of. There's tens of thousands of of, of uh, elementary school students going skiing every week during the winter, and that's and that obviously is creating a ground base that's getting their parents involved and really expanding the industry. Um, if you look at any performance of any of the sporting goods and equipment supply companies in the country, you're seeing massive increases in equipment sales, um, gym memberships, me- me- uh, seasons passes to, to ski resorts. I mean, in some cases, you're seeing double and triple uh, level growth year on year over the past three or four years. So right now, I'd say just in visitation alone, we've seen a threefold increase in uh, th- a threefold increase in ski visitation to ski resorts and a doubling of revenue. Um, so it's now a, a, almost a trillion RMB industry in China we're coming up on. It's uh, it's quite unbelievable to watch. 
Have they been able to keep up? You would you would think that that level of increase in anything would cause a certain amount of problems, logistically, uh, staffing, otherwise. Um, how are the you know the hills? Um, how is the infrastructure handling that drastic increase? Infrastructure is fine. I mean, China is very good at building things. That's that's no question. Uh, <laughs> that's def- true. Definitely staffing. Staffing is probably the biggest challenge. And even as uh, last night talking to one of the the world, the one well, one of Europe's, let's say, uh, most prominent hospitality education colleges or universities, just talking about the opportunity for sports management programs and just the the, the general training of not just the hospitality industry, but the hospitality industry in mountain environments, in an integrated resort environment. And the, the big gap between um, what the consumer expects and what the worker understands about the industry. And that's probably the, being the biggest, uh, the, the biggest gap is that the workers, for the most part, are just working in this industry because they need a job. It's not because they have a passion for the industry. I got into the industry because I just loved the environment. So I had to find a job in that environment because that's where I wanted to be. Here, the the customers are spending a lot of money looking for a certain experience, but the staff don't understand why the customer wants to be in that environment. And that's where uh, that's where we're probably needing to play a lot of catch up. And where the where the global brands, uh, you know, equipment or clothing or or media or whatever, can help to raise the cultural understanding of why people want to be in winter sport and make it their career and not just a part time job. Yeah, and I think that leads well into you know the next thing I wanted to talk about. And speaking of those stakeholders um, that you are in dialogue with and that you help and work with, I mean, there's obviously a lot of different reasons and various options when looking at China as a destination, leisure resorts, activities, um, tourism, things. But I would guess that visiting a, a ski resort isn't necessarily, you know, you don't think of China when you envision going skiing somewhere. You think Austria, maybe Japan, you know, there's a lot of other places. China, maybe not on that list so much. So what are some of the things that you've had to work with and help your stakeholders understand? And then maybe conversely, what have you learned from them about, you know, tourism recreation industry in China? Well, the interesting thing about the Chinese consumer is a lot of them have been overseas, uh, including the owners. So before COVID, you know, Outbound Chinese winter sport travelers were making up a pretty large percentage of people going to places like Switzerland or France and certainly to Japan. So the Chinese consumer is actually a lot more knowledgeable about how a high quality destination should work because they've seen some of the oldest and you know most well-known resorts in the world. Um, they're coming back to China and uh, demanding better quality of experiences and better value for money, whether it be safer or more options or better quality, whatever the case may be. So they're putting a lot of, a lot of pressure. Um, The developers, uh, you know, typically have been shielded from understanding how things work behind the scenes. So they do a very good job of making sure that things look good out outside, but as we would say, the front of house. So where the consumers work, but they're a bit of a mess behind the scenes. Um, so we're seeing a lot of things, uh, a lot of things change there. The resort environment in China is, is multidimensional. So the most people who would go to a ski resort as a family in Canada, 
they're all going to go skiing or snowboarding. That's what they're there for. And that's eight hours of their day is spent focusing on that. But the difference about the ski resorts in China, which is different to the ones in, in the, in the West is that people need so many other things to do. They, they might want to spend a lot of time dining uh, more than perhaps we would in North America. They're looking for other attractions, um, both indoors and outdoors. They're looking for tours. They're, they're, you know, they're very, they're very keen to engage in other things other than just skiing. So skiing, the, probably the biggest difference is that the ski resorts and something I've tried to get my, my developers to understand is you are, are a resort that has skiing. You're not a ski resort. So everything does not have to be purely about the snow, right? Snow is just something that is open for eight hours a day for four months of the year, but for the rest of the time, it is something else. And I think that's probably the biggest, uh, understanding shift that I think we've, we've managed to evolve. And now the, the, the resorts have so much more to offer and so much more to offer year round. So they're, you know, it's a 24 hour revenue clock so, you know, with different types of people coming for different experiences all the time. Um, so that was, that was one interesting transition I've seen in the industry. Uh, you know, I've learned quite a bit, I think from the Chinese developer, one is uh, the, the, China is a massive country and under, just understanding the, the, the sheer, I guess, capability for absorption of something, of, of an of a opportunity by the market. So once people adopt something, it's large. So the go big or go home mentality might not work in other countries, but it certainly works here. You have to think big. Uh, and, and that's probably the biggest, the, the biggest gap. The, the biggest, uh, let's just say, difference in perhaps I would have operated overseas was very methodical phased planning of, of something. Uh, maybe build one hotel per year. And here you build five at a time because the absorption rate is so much greater here. I don't think that we've had the opportunity. I've never myself even had the opportunity to ask somebody this kind of question. But when one or many but when when an organization a developer when somebody is building a ski resort developing a ski resort can you tell us what are the different elements that go into that development that go into building a ski resort and then how how does that differ from what you might know from outside china how is it different in china and all the intricate details of, of how long the process takes, uh, logistics, uh, money, end to end, uh, how long does that all take? Yeah, well, look, obviously the, the, the primary, uh, the, the primary thing that one's need, one needs to determine is the location. So one is, does it have the, the natural attributes, uh, whether it's, an, if it's a ski resort environment, is the temperatures, is the temperature suitable? Is the, uh, for, for making snow or natural snow production. Do you have access to water is very important in China being a relatively dry uh, country. Uh, so having access to water, um, being able to cut trees because in China, uh, for example, you know, while we have a big country, there's not a lot of trees and trees are an important part of the government's policy for creating a, a, a you know, a nice, high quality natural ecosystem with national parks and, you know, clean air, all of these things. Um, you know, so, so the natural attributes of the, of the land, uh, are key. 
So can you build a ski area? Does it have the right orientation for retaining snow or sunlight or wind? All of these types of things. Just because it's a mountain doesn't mean you can mean you can build a ski resort on it. Um, and then it's accessibility. So from who is your your who is your market? Is it a destination market or is it a local market? And how are they going to get there? We've been very fortunate in China to have such amazing uh, transportation policy. So high speed trains are everywhere. You know, when I first went up in the Olympic cluster right now in um, in Tongli, Zhangjiakou, where the the freestyle venues were, when we first started looking at that location as a venue back in 2008, 2009, it would take six, seven hours to get there. Uh, and it's only 180 kilometers from Beijing. Now it takes 45 minutes on the high speed train. You know, these are game changing, game changing infrastructure items that transform a market. Um, so, so those are the, you know, those are the, the key elements. So it's the location and it's, uh, it, I guess it's adaptability to become the resort that it is, um, you know, the, obviously understanding the local consumers, uh, competitive opportunities, how, how, what other things do they have within the same drive market that you need to compete with for their time and money. So, you know, in the case of Beijing, we're not far from the coast. So we have beach resorts, you know, we have other cultural and mountain destinations. Uh, we have other sporting opportunities, uh, you know, whatever they might be. So really what other components can you bring into this environment that will make it unique and make it a deciding factor for people to want to go there. Um, and you need the support of the government. And thankfully the, the national policy trickles down to the county, the county governments as well is the ability to put the infrastructure in place, the utilities, the water, the sewer, the electricity, uh, the roads, all of these things to get there. The government is is really quite supportive, which in other countries, it's often not the case, uh, whether it, whether it's financially or environmentally driven. Um, typically, in, uh, in China, I would say it takes you two years from the moment you decide to do something to the point where you could be open to the public. Whereas in North America or Europe, if at all, if you're even allowed to get a new resort off the ground, which is very rare, uh, it might take you, you know, five or 10 years to work through the various approval processes. But purely from a planning standpoint, uh, here in China, we're looking at around two years just to get your ski trails and lifts in place. You probably will have hotels uh, in the two to three year range. And you're running a full year-round operation uh, in into year three, um, so it's in it's that is a breakneck speed by anybody's standards in in uh, in any other country. And the only reason it's a little bit slower here is because they don't do a lot of year-round construction, so construction is limited to the summer months in, in northeast China. So, if it wasn't for that, then uh, things would be moving faster. As you mentioned that this is a, a, a top-down driven policy, you know, from, from as high up as it gets in the government in China, do they face any friction? Um, do they face any hurdles from any groups in China that uh, maybe oppose the growth, the building, the infrastructure, the spending? Does Does that happen? I know that you know, in, in North America, there's a lot of checks and balances with regards to spending and growth and building and things like that. Is is that a thing in China? Uh, if it is, it's very quiet. I mean, there's definitely people who have, who have their own opinions, uh, whether or not those opinions become platforms where lots of people will jump on board and make it a public issue. Um, you know, I think there's 
in developing ski resorts in China, there's three three major things that the government is quite sensitive to. Certainly, relocation of uh, of farmlands and farmers. You know, we need a lot of land to support food production for China. So, you know, there's 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 pressure on on food production. There's pressure on tree cutting. There's pressure on water. Um, all of these things seem to have been carefully managed by the government so far. So there, you know, if to develop a resort, there are lots of hurdles a resort developer must either uh, financially or environmentally solve before they're allowed to do anything. Now, 10 years ago, this might not have been the case. And certainly in the golf industry, it was very evident that this uh, governance of the industry got out of control or there was no governance. So basically the government shut down golf course development because it was just unregulated and unmanaged and damaged, doing all of the same things to the environment, to the local population as, as skiing could have done if it wasn't regulated. So I don't think there's uh, you know, the, the, the government obviously wants to see a, a financially sustainable industry Um and as I think as long as they have policy that enables Chinese people to take more time off work, to enable kids to be in sport, uh, to be able to buy recreational real estate, uh, all of these policies, while they're, they're indirectly supporting the sustainability and sustainability of the industry. And I think that's paramount to them. They don't want to see a bunch of white elephants pop up, perhaps like what happened in Japan over the decades um, they don't want to see that happen in China. So I think they will be careful about how they go about this in the coming years. The, the population is watching. Um, it is a top-down initiative, but it's also a bottom-up initiative in the sense that there's a lot of Chinese people who have time, have money, want to do things, and need the ability to get to places to have a good time. And I think that's uh, it's coming from both directions, which is good. One of the trends... And I think it's probably a understatement to say trends, but one of the trends that we're seeing in a lot of the ski resorts over here in North America is, of course, the drive. And it's been going on for quite some time to, to really create the four season, the 365 uh, day uh, entertainment value um, opportunity and activities um, that the resort can potentially offer. I know that even my local ski hill close to where I am in Canada, which purchased by a, a you know a, a rather large outdoor adventure sports company as well investing in just more activities because you have the tube towns you have skating you have snowmobiling you have snowshoeing you have ice climbing you have everything under the sun um, that you can now bring and then of course you get into the spring and the summer and then it's all the mountain biking and the hiking and uh, you know the downhill and cross country and everything it's 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 really kind of coming full circle is china and the resorts there already taking it to those levels to create those four season opportunities to uh economically drive the resorts uh, some more than others for sure i think i think all developers understand that to utilize your capital assets for as many hours and as many days of the year is to their benefit rather than having them sit dormant or hotels sitting dormant or chairlifts not spinning. Um, it obviously makes sense for them to be used as many hours and as many days. They all realize that many of them have been slow uh, to pick up on that. Um, and part of it is of the fear is that they don't, you need to take time out to build these things, which means that you're, you're, 
you're creating uh, construction conflicts within the environment so they don't want to disrupt their operational business by being under construction. So a lot of them have basically just been delaying major infrastructure relating to summer because they want to keep their revenue stream in place during the summer months uh, as long as possible. So some resorts, uh, certainly in the Chongli region, um, you know, like a Taiwu ski resort, which has been one of our projects since 2013, made the conscious effort early to be a leader in developing the year-round market. So they put investment into building downhill mountain bike trails, some of the best in the world. And, and our designers, we bought them out of Whistler. They built Whistler bike trails, um, luge carts, like uh, finding technologies from around the world, like out of New Zealand, out of uh, Queenstown. Uh, to build luge carts, zip lines, uh, orienteering parks, trail running, hiking trails. It needed to, it took a lot of planning and a lot of investment and a commitment to go after the market. So now they've set the benchmark other people are following. But the thing was, is that Chinese people were not necessarily used to going to the mountains in the summertime because there was nothing that existed. So it takes a little bit of time for the pressure from the market to say, hey, we're, we're here and we're ready to come. Give us something and we will be there. Give us some events, festivals, concerts, uh, you know, large sporting competitions in the summer, summer camps. All of these things are coming. Um, it's just taken probably 10 years longer than it should have if the foresight had been there to, to make that investment to start with. Are there any international brands in the snow sports, winter sports sector that are doing really well in China? Sure. I th- well, I would think at almost every every uh, sport or winter sport related brand is interested in the opportunities that China presents. Some of them have made great headroads or uh, headway into uh, in, in into China. Have done very well. Have established great customer base. Have done well financially. Are still expanding. Mostly those those ones have been initially have been in the master planning uh, categories. You know, even a nice Canadian homegrown company like EcoSign out of Whistler has designed many of the leading resorts in China. So being built at, being designed at international uh, standards uh, with all of the components that one would expect to find in the destination international resort. Um, you know, the major chairlift companies like Doppelmayr and Palma, snowmaking companies. Um, these guys certainly have done very, very well in the previous years. But they they need to uh, keep their eye on the ball because China is also developing its own technologies uh, using global best practices at much lower uh, costs to you know to design and manufacture and develop and procure materials much cheaper. Um, so they the, the international companies have done very well in the past and still do well to certain markets, but. At uh, at other at other ends of the market, the Chinese uh, brands are coming up, up uh, very strongly. You know, you've got your equipment equipment companies and clothing companies like Burton or Atomic and Rossignol, Arcteryx, Dassault. Uh, all of these brands have done very well uh, in in the past and continue to do well. Uh, the con- you know the the base the the consumer. Uh, highly respects a high quality international brand, and while there are Chinese brands doing very well as well. The leaders in develop, as far as visibility goes, the international brands still have a great opportunity to grow. They need to 
perhaps change their uh, approach and not be so rigid, perhaps in the types of products that they offer and that think of their brands more as lifestyle brands rather than ski or winter sports specific brands, because I think that's where the huge opportunity is for, for people like them. But international brands certainly have done well here and will continue to for some time, but it's not, they, they don't take, they shouldn't take it for granted. They have to work and compete to, to keep their place. What do you see, if you don't mind my asking, predict uh, as the future of winter sports in China in five or so years? What does it look like by then? Um, well, you know, China is is coming from a low starting point. You know, if you look at obviously we have the Olympics coming up in uh, in a few short months. Um, most countries that have hosted Olympics are already mature winter sport nations. Um, China is not. So if you look at like a a, a graph, a, a curve, uh, China is still on a fairly low upward trajectory. It is growing fast. But if you if you think about the fact that you know say bank you know Canada has a fairly stable uh, penetration of how many of the population participate in skiing, China is still a tiny tiny percentage of the population that will have the opportunity and interest to get in the sport. So it's going to continue to grow. After the Olympics, will probably grow dramatically. Um, you know, right now we're probably still sitting at less than 2% of the population have been exposed to, to winter sport. If you look at mature nations like Japan or Korea, picking on Asian nations, you know, these were in the high teens or 20% of the population at their heyday were involved in winter sport or in, involved in skiing specifically. So China has a, a, a great growth opportunity. I think Chinese athletes at the Olympics will surprise uh, will surprise the world at how well how well they will do that for as far as uh, getting medals, um, and I think the Chinese population will also jump on this bandwagon as well. They they love their athletes, they love their celebrities. If Chinese athletes do well, then more people will aspire to get into the sport. I think government policy will continue to 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 support sport in general, but certainly winter sport. I think they were coming into the, a new phase of redevelopment of the industry. Several of the ski resorts are now coming up to six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. So there'll be re redevelopment, reinvestment, perhaps consolidation uh, within the industry. So we've got right now 700 places you can go skiing and 700 owners. So I think there will be some consolidation in our industry, which will make it more affordable uh, for the consumer to get into the sport and stay with the sport. I think recreational real estate will increase more sporting programs, sports academies, sports education, all of these things, uh, will contribute to the, the continued growth. I think in a few, in a few years time, maybe five years, if you say it, China will be, if not a global leader, the global leader in winter sport participants. We recently had your friend and colleague, Freddie Bacon, on the show. And knowing that you were queued up as well to be a guest, I asked Freddie to take over my job and to come up with a good question that he thought he would like to ask you if he were the host of this show. So I ask you, channeling my inner Freddie Bacon, what are snow resorts in China doing well so well, in fact, that resorts in the West should be not only taking notice, but trying to keep up and doing the same. Well, I wish I wish I was on before him because then I could have asked him a question. But uh, now now that now that being said, you know, the, the Chinese industry is extremely dynamic. 
uh, is what I would say they've done well. They react well. Uh, you know, yes, they, they're very good at planning, but they're also very good at reacting. And they, they're very easy, very easy to adopt uh, new partners, uh, new alignments, new technologies. Uh, they're not afraid to make investments uh, and try things. Um, so it's it's not that they're carefree and not worried about their their budgets and their money, but uh, they're they're really concerned about keeping ahead of the consumer's needs, and that's and what I do think perhaps is different to say North America is in North America it's a fairly generic offering. A ski resort is a ski resort; it has all of the same components, uh, and they're looking to each other as an industry. Uh, to benchmark themselves, um, you know what? You know if if this resort is doing that, then we should do it too. If they've designed their ski food court this way, we should do it that way too. And in China, what I realize, what what I, I've always encouraged them to do, and what they are definitely doing very well, is they understand that their consumers don't they don't come with a preconceived notion of of what to expect. So they the the, the developer is looking into other areas, whether it be supermarkets or movie theaters or theme parks or hospitals or airports to handle things like people movement and how to feed people efficiently and quickly, how to take their money as quickly as possible, like pay, you know, totally cashless societies and you know how to move people quickly and efficiently is not always something China has been good at, but the, China, the winter sport industry and ski industry has really taken it on board to, uh, to keep ahead of the consumer demand and look outside of their industry for ideas. And I think they've done that very well. Awesome. Justin Downs, President, Access Leisure Management. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show. This was amazing. And man, are we looking forward to seeing the show that Beijing puts on for the 2022 Winter Olympics. Thank you. Let's bring it on. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.